It's Philosophy Talk. The United States has taken lethal, targeted action against Al-Qaeda and its associated forces, including with remotely piloted aircraft commonly referred to as drones. Is drone warfare morally better or morally worse than conventional warfare? This new technology raises profound questions about accountability and morality. Is drone warfare too cold, mechanical, and efficient to be morally acceptable? It's a strange weapon in that it actually gives a credible distance, but at the same time, a shocking level of intimacy. Our guest is Bradley Strasser from the Naval Postgraduate School. If you have this great weapon that in potential theory could be used more morally, but yet the way it's used is shrouded in mystery and darkness, uh, we don't really know who we're killing. Do drones really reduce the cost of going to war? It's not a video game. You don't get PTSD from a video game. The Ethics of Drone Warfare. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, a program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Mars Theater in Berkeley, Berkeley, California. Our thinking originates across the bay at the corner, Philosopher's Corner, and on the Stanford University campus. That's where Ken teaches philosophy, and I did for 40 wonderful years. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Now, today, we're talking about the ethics of drone warfare. Well, that's timely, Ken, because in the last six years alone, 2,500 people have been killed by U.S. drone strikes. That's nine times as many drone attacks under President Obama than under his predecessor, uh, George the W. You know, what I find really remarkable about that is the number of deaths on our side. On our side, I suppose that's zero or close to it. Yeah, yeah, because drones are precise, effective weapons that can reduce unintended casualties, and best of all, they don't even put our own soldiers at risk. That's a cool thing. Well, you sound enthused. You sound like this is all a good thing. Of course it's a good thing. How could it not be? Surely, you agree, it's morally preferable to use weapons that limit the number of intended and unintended casualties than to use ones that increase them, right? Well, limited on one side. Our guys aren't in danger when we bomb Pakistan, Afghanistan, or wherever we're bombing on a given day. But what about those people? Hundreds of civilians, innocent civilians, have been killed by drones since Obama took office. How is that morally preferable. Well, because you got to think about the base rate, John. Imagine uh, what those numbers would be if we uh, bombed those targets using less precise technology instead. There'd be many more civilian deaths. Surely less is better than more. Yeah, well, imagine what it'd be like if we didn't go around bombing places. That's a problem with drones. They make it too easy for the powers that be and powers that would be like you to <laughs> bomb whomever they want without any political fallout. You're confused, John. You're just you're objecting to U.S. foreign policy, not to drone warfare. Look, you got to keep keep separate things separate. There are two distinct moral questions here. Both deserve uh, addressing. Question one: Are drones morally preferable to other weapons used in war? Question two: 
do we have good reason to go to war regardless of what weapon is being used? Well, you're not getting my point. Uh, th these questions get entangled in people's minds. When, you're, when, you're, when you make going to war politically too easy with technology like drones, you create a political culture in which people convince themselves that we ought to be fighting all kinds of stupid wars all over the place. Well, well but, but look... Maybe there are also wars that we really should be fighting, but we lack the political will because we fear the possibility of high casualties for our servicemen. With drones, we can just X that consideration out. We don't have to worry about that. So we can fight wars just because they're the right thing to do, just because they're just. Yeah, that's great. What, what the world needs more of now is war, sweet war. That's your opinion. And the idea of remote-controlled killing machines that bomb places in the Middle East because of what people do in South Dakota and North Dakota, oh, it's just disgusting, it's dishonorable, it's cold, it's horrible. John, I gotta tell you this. Cold is a good thing in war. It means our soldiers can be calm and dispassionate and not have to act rashly or out of fear. They, they can take their time. They can choose their targets wisely, hit the targets precisely, making sure that there are no civilians around who could get killed. It's a great thing, John. Well, like you're living in la-la land, Ken. I mean, drones kill lots of innocent civilians. Uh, twice as many civilians have been killed by drones uh, under Obama than were under Bush. But don't blame the drones for that. There could be all kinds of reasons that, that, that have nothing to do with the technology as such. You know, maybe the intelligence used to identify the target was, was bad, or, or the commander in ch charge simply didn't make avoiding civilians a, a high enough priority. That's not the fault of the drones. Well, Ken, you're, you're going ho about drones. But, you know, your defense is really based on some fantasy world in which they're never used to fight unjust wars. And innocent civilians are never killed. That's just unrealistic. You can't talk about the ethics of drones without talking about how they're actually used in the real world. Okay, you want to get real. So let's get real. Let's talk about the real-life experiences of those directly controlling this technology. What does it feel like to operate a military drone? We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shukun Kalantari, to talk to one of the first drone operators ever recruited by the U.S. Air Force. She files this report. Brandon Bryant didn't plan on enlisting in the Air Force. It was kind of happenstance. One day he was dropping off his friend at the Army recruiter, and the Air Force recruiter was right next door. And he was bored and didn't have a client in there, and so I, he was like, young man, come talk with me. Come have a seat. And I was like, okay. Brandon was living with his single mom at the time, a public school teacher in Missoula, Montana. He told the recruiter he was struggling to afford college, and he was terrified of going into debt. And he was like, well, the Air Force has its own accredited college, and uh, of course that was all the seed that he needed to plant. I had just turned 19. That was 2005. Brennan planned on going into intelligence. A few months later, he was sent to the middle of the Nevada desert on a secret mission. I showed up and they showed us a montage video of Hellfire missile shots and bad guys on the ground shooting set to heavy metal music. And uh, this guy walks down the center aisle of the 11th Reconnaissance Squadron. He turns around and he's like, your job is to kill people and break things. <laughs> and I was like, what? It's not what I signed up to do. 
Brandon tried to back out, but it was too late. He was officially a sensor operator for the U.S. Air Force. He was going to fly drones. Soon after, Brandon killed his first target. And they looked like three scared individuals walking along the road, not knowing what they were doing, and uh, that we were told that they had weapons and we were going to shoot at them, and that was it. Brandon says he was more afraid of not fulfilling his duty than taking another life. So he shot the three men. And then as soon as the smoke cleared, I watched this guy rolling around on the ground, bleeding, and I watched him die. <laughs> I watched him die, I watched him more than die, I watched him lose all of his body heat. And then they were like, ah, good shot. Everyone started cheering and congratulating him, but Brandon felt sick. I went out to my car and I tried to drive off a base and the frickin' stoplight wouldn't turn green. I should have just gone through it, but I couldn't. I felt trapped. I was, I was trapped on, in this life and I didn't like it. And after, after that, it was like robot mode. I went, I went into robot mode after that. Brandon would come home from base every night, get drunk, and play a bunch of video games. He'd also have nightmares, in infrared. Then in 2011, Brandon went on his first leave, but the drinking and nightmares didn't stop. Eventually, he met a Vietnam vet who told him to get help. He's like, it took me 25 years, and I don't want, you're doing the same thing that I was doing. You have the same mannerisms I did. Isolationism, anger at the world, <laughs> hateful towards civilians especially, shame in my service, lots and lots and lots of drinking. Brandon agreed to see a VA therapist. He was diagnosed with PTSD and depression. He's not alone. A study from the Department of Defense shows drone operators suffer from the same levels of depression, alcoholism, and suicidal thoughts as traditional combat fighters. It's now been four years since Brandon left the Air Force. Every week, he goes to a therapist meeting at the VA, and every day, he struggles with PTSD and depression. And he's homeless. The depression and the PTSD get worse when I'm like, is this, has this really been worth it? Like. I'm still a homeless veteran struggling along in the world. If Brandon Bryant had not decided to drop off his friend at the Army recruiter 10 years ago, he might have been a graduate of the University of Montana today. Instead, he lives out of his car. Brandon says what keeps him going is doing good for others, sharing his story to whoever will listen, and advocating against the use of drone warfare. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kantari. To hear the rest of this program, head to philosophytalk.org. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.